Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 37, which corresponds with the week of August 28, 2023. This week, we're going to dive into a literature review, as well as nutrition misinformation and the recipe of the week. So let's get started. Literature review number one. What has happened in the realm of cancer incidents over the last decade? As one would expect, it is climbing especially for breast cancer and GI cancers. From the study, quote, in 2019, breast cancer had the highest number of incident early onset cases. By organ system, gastrointestinal cancers had the fastest growing incident rates of early onset cancer, followed by cancers of the urinary system and female reproductive system. Among gastrointestinal cancers in 2019, the most common types of incident early onset cancers were in the colon and or rectum, stomach, and pancreas. During the study period, the gastrointestinal early onset cancers with the fastest growing incidence rates were in the appendix, intrahepatic bile duct, and pancreas. End quote. This comes to us from Co. et al. 2023. And that was published in the journal JAMA. So what we realized from this is that the data set parallels our real-life view. There are way too many people with breast and GI cancers in the 30 to 50-year-old age range, and that data is unfortunately getting worse. What does it mean? Well, clearly, the early onset of these diseases is related to dietary influences, chemical exposures, stress, and many other things that we've talked about over and over again. So in order to stem the tide of this problem, we need to get back to the roots of how we prevent these diseases through the basics of functional lifestyle medicine. But the data set is there for all of us to understand our risk moving forward. Number two, parasites remain a hot area of study. In the journal Nature, Nature Communications, we see a fascinating study looking at non-autoimmune type 2 diabetes therapy with Necator americanus, or otherwise known as hookworm, from the study. Quote, the reduced prevalence of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes in countries with endemic parasitic worm infections suggests a protective role for worms against metabolic disorders. However, clinical evidence has been non-existent. This two-year randomized double-blind trial in Australia of hookworm infection in 40 male and female adults at risk for type 2 diabetes assessed the safety and potential metabolic benefits of treatment with either 20 Necator americanus larvae or placebo. Primary outcome was safety, defined by adverse events and complication rate. Homeostatic model assessment of insulin resistance, fasting blood glucose, and body mass were key secondary outcomes. Adverse events were more frequent in hookworm-treated participants where 44% experienced an expected gastrointestinal symptom, but completion rates were comparable to the placebo group. Fasting glucose and insulin resistance were lowered in both hookworm-treated groups at one year. The body mass was also reduced after hookworm treatments at two years. This study suggests that hookworm infection is safe in people at risk for type 2 diabetes and associated with improved insulin resistance, warranting further exploration of the benefits of hookworms on metabolic health, end quote, Pierce et al. 2023. And again, that comes to us from the journal Nature Communications. So what do we see here? Well, we know historically that humans live with parasites for a long time. I am in favor of the research in this realm and think we should be looking into treating patients with safe parasites that don't cause systemic disease and long-term damage. Look to the work of Dr. William Parker and the podcast that was done a year and a half ago, number seven, discussing further into this research. 
I think there's more to come here, more to be said about getting back to some historical realities. Number three, can apples and other plants help a baby's nerves stay healthy? A new study from Monash University in Australia says that this may be happening. From the authors, quote, in animals, maternal diet and environment can influence the health of the offspring. Whether and how maternal dietary choices impacts the nervous system across multiple generations is not well understood. Here we show that feeding a certain worm called Senorabitidis elegans with ursolic acid, a natural plant product, improves axon transport and reduces adult onset axon fragility intergenerationally. Ursolic acid provides neuroprotection by enhancing maternal provisioning of sphingosine 1-phosphate, a bioactive sphingolipid. Intestinal oocyte sphingosine 1-phosphate transfer is required for intergenerational neuroprotection and is dependent on the RME2 lipoprotein yolk receptor. Sphingosine 1-phosphate acts intergenerationally by upregulating the transcription of the acid ceramidase 1, ASAH1 gene in the intestine. Spatial regulation of sphingolipid metabolism is critical as inappropriate ASAH1 expression in neurons causes developmental axonal outgrowth defects. Our results show that sphingolipid homeostasis impacts the development and intergenerational health of the nervous system. The ability of spe specific lipid metabolites to act as messengers between generations may have broad implications for dietary choice during reproduction. End quote. That comes to us from Wang et al. And that was published in the journal Nature Cell Biology. So this study was done in worms, which is a far cry from a human baby. However, these are the first links between a chemical called ursolic acid and the health for a human, possibly. More research to follow. The chemicals naturally found in apples and herbs like basil, rosemary, thyme, oregano, and sage. What's the downside to consuming these foods? Not much. My thoughts remain as well always rooted in the ability of ourselves to use chemicals and foods that are historically been involved with us over our entire evolutionary process. It makes sense that natural herbs and foods would be beneficial that because these chemicals have been with us for a long time as far as species survival. My recommendation is consume lots of apples and herbs when pregnant. We know this. Number four. When looking at past COVID-19 sequelae, we see that the increased risk of death was not significant beyond six months after injection among non-hospitalized or home-managed individuals. However, it was significantly elevated up to two years in hospitalized individuals. This comes to us from Bo et al. 2023 in the journal Nature Medicine. This remains a testament to the severity of the inflammation in the hospitalized patients who had inflammatory risk factors, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and hypertension. The post-acute issues were as follows. Sequelae are grouped by organ system, acute coronary artery disease, abnormal involuntary movements, acute kidney injury, chronic kidney disease, deep vein thrombosis, end-stage kidney disease, general anxiety disorder, gastrointestinal reflux disease, irritable bowel syndrome, ischemic cardiopathy, cardiomyopathy, excuse me, interstitial lung disease, myocardial infarction, neurocognitive decline, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, post-traumatic stress disorder, peptic ulcer disease, transient ischemic attack, and venous thromboembolism. The simple answer remains unchanged. Control what you control, which is your immune health prior to infection, so that you don't end up hospitalized with a significant inflammatory disease, as stated. It's just that simple. Five, 
in a really interesting paper written by mathematicians in, the, in Australia, we see a discussion of reasonable understanding of the current COVID situation. With the original reproductive rate from the Omicron variant of the virus of around 10 to 15, the spread in a naive population was massive, actually exponential. Now with broad-based waxing and waning immunity nationally in all countries, we are in an endemic normalcy of a rapidly mutable virus. This reality has lowered the effective reproductive rate to about one, which is on par with seasonal influenza. From the article, quote, and populations are highly varied, not, human, not homogeneous. Infections will be more frequent in groups with high contact rates, which typically means younger people. Mathematically, that means infection rates will be harder to budge in younger groups and relatively easier to bring down in older groups. Interventions targeted towards vulnerable groups are likely to be more effective than blanket measures. Importantly, although reducing infection rates in the long term is difficult, vaccines provide direct protection for those who take them and continue to be highly effective at preventing severe disease. None of this is an argument that we shouldn't try to reduce the prevalence of endemic diseases like COVID, but it does mean we can't assume that a reduction in the number of infectious cases or contacts will translate to an equivalent reduction in infection rates. Decreasing the number of SARS-CoV-2 infections would be highly beneficial. It would reduce the acute health burden, the incidence of long COVID, and the level of risk for vulnerable groups. But it's not the goal we can afford to pursue at any cost. There is a range of healthcare needs competing for limited resources, so any measures need to be cost-effective. And that means being realistic about the size of the benefits they're likely to deliver. End quote. Plank it all 2023 in the conversation. For me, it remains clear that in our clinic, COVID-19, since the early Omicron iterations, is nothing more than the common cold. We have not had a single severe case, hospitalization, or long COVID case that I am currently aware of, despite looking vigilantly for it. This is not to say that other groups are not at risk. We remain watchful, vigilant, but aware that the realities as they exist on the ground are not significant. As always, all known high-risk groups should follow vaccine booster recommendations and CDC recommendations. Okay, that's it for the literature review. Now let's skip over to section two, nutrition misinformation. In a new article by Dr. Stephen Guillenet, we see the following, quote, things all came crashing down when I got a blister on the bottom of my foot. That didn't heal, David explained. It put me in the hospital in danger of losing my foot. David had spent the last nine years treating his type 2 diabetes with a low-fat vegan diet on the advice of a doctor who authored a popular diet book. As part of the doctor's program, David was told that the diet is the best treatment for his condition, that the medical system is designed to keep us sick, and that he should stop taking his diabetes medications. Despite the doctor's confident assurances, the diet failed to control David's diabetes. Years of extreme blood sugar levels left him with nerve damage in his feet, eyes, and reduced ability to heal. In the hours after I asked my Twitter audience to share how they have been harmed by nutrition misinformation, a steady trickle of stories like David's began appearing in my inbox. One woman was hospitalized for oxalate kidney stones caused by a very high vegetable diet she had designed based on paleo and vegetarian sources online. One man lost excessive weight and had to be hospitalized for fecal impaction after following a carnivore diet. Another carnivore dieter had already gone public with his story of requiring a triple coronary bypass after years of believing the claim common in the carnivore low-carb communities, that very high LDL cholesterol sometimes caused by these diets isn't harmful, end quote. That's from Dr. Guillenet's piece that was written in Asterisk. 
So what do we know? We have a problem in the media landscape regarding false diet claims and promotional diets that are messy at best. It is clear to me after years of study that the human frame can tolerate most nutritional inputs that are varied and whole food based, based on the redundancy of our metabolic system to survive diverse climates and landscapes. Monotonic diets, i.e. potato only, meat only, etc., are not safe or healthy for many reasons. Vegan diets make little sense to me from a scientific perspective. Ketogenic diets are not recommended long-term unless we are dealing with a specific medical condition like seizures and brain cancer. The standard American highly processed diet is unhealthy, full stop. Where I diverge from Dr. Guillenet in this piece with regard to data is the elimination diets based on immunological triggers like non-celiac gluten sensitivity or casein milk protein intolerance. I think that over time, the science will prove these to be so beneficial as I see them in clinic that they will become normal place. The whole article is worth reading in its entirety and the link is in the newsletter. Recipe of the week this week is hummus, white bean style by Giada De Laurentiis. Awesome. So good. Great source of fiber, sulfur, omega-9, fatty acid, iron, protein, and calcium. Run a cucumber slice through it for taste. Bam. Lovely texture, flavor, and health. Buen appetito. So one last thing. A few weeks ago, I lost my furry best friend, Coco. She was a golden retriever that we'd had for 10 and a half years. She was a love, love, love. So I went on ChatGPT just for fun. I don't go on there very often. But I thought it'd be interesting to see what ChatGPT could come up with as an ode to Coco. So I sort of put in, write an ode to a dog, golden retriever, from the style of Dr. Seuss. And this is what came out. So I modified it a good bit. But this is a combination of ChatGPT inspired with my sense of understanding of what I loved about my dog. So here we go. In memory of Coco. In a world of tails and wagging wags, where floppy ears do flop and drag, oh, let me tell you, dear old chum, about Coco, so full of fun. She came in a size, not big, but almost small, from an auburn top to a white below. Her nose twitching, sniffing air, she would find the scents that linger there, a leaf, a squirrel, a hidden treat. Her nose never missed a beat. Oh, the joy she brought each day, with looks that chased the biggest blues away. Her boundless energy, a sight to see. She frolicked, jumped, and ran with glee. She would fetch the ball in a blink, bringing it back, sometimes with a wag and a wink. Throw it again, she would seem to say, her eyes alive in playful display. Let's not forget those puppy eyes that melt your heart and tell no lies. They beg for scraps with earnest grace and snuggle close in warm embrace. So here's to Coco, our love and loss, with a heart of gold, nay, more precious than gold. She taught us lessons, pure and true, of loyalty, of love, and of joy anew. In the lake, the yard, and the open air, she brought a love beyond compare. So let us cherish all our furry friends, for their love, the journey never ends. For my girl Coco, August 3rd, 2023. Rest in peace, my girl. All right, folks. Song of the Week, Where I've Been, Rival Sons. It's a lovely song. Highly encourage you to listen to them. Band out of L.A. That's it for this week. As always, hug those kids. Be well. And just enjoy life.
Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audiocasted newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This audiocasted newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.